Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. From rebel cop to righteous whistleblower, deep dive political analyst and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon, with something a little different this time. In a conversation with young former Marine turned anti-imperialist commentator for New Atlas and reporting out of Thailand, Brian Berletic. Welcome to New Atlas Live. Uh, joining me today is Garland Nixon. He's a political commentator. I will call him an analyst. Uh, he does excellent work. Uh, this is his first time coming on. Hello, Garland. How are you? Hey, Brian. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I, wa- I love your show. Watch it all the time. I never miss an episode. Uh, and likewise, and uh, for people who don't know, uh, I go on Radio Sputnik every week with you and uh, Dr. Wilmar Leon, and uh, it's a great time. It's at midnight for me. So it's a little <laughs> tough, but uh, let, let's get right into it. I've heard little bits and pieces about your backgrounds, watching your live streams. You'll mention something here and there. Just uh, for people who may never have seen you before, can you just kind of give a, a little background about yourself, how you got into doing political commentary and analysis, and uh, why? Why are you doing it? Well, uh, let's see. I, I, I was a in law enforcement for years. I was a, I retired as a police, actually a police official in the United States. I mean, in uh, Maryland, state of Maryland. When I retired, I was working for the governor's office. Um, I um, uh, started dealing with the American Civil Liberties Union back in the 1990s. I eventually um, became a, 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 on the board of directors for the state of Maryland and then on the national board of directors. Many, many years I was on the board of directors of the ACLU. I came up with some very serious conflicts with him at some point and um, resigned in protest from the board, ACLU board. Um, and um, uh, I, I just at one point I started doing um, when I was with the ACLU, I actually there was a very cons- I'm a very left leaning person. There was a very a conservative radio station in Baltimore that said they wanted someone to come on and from the ACLU to debate about the death penalty. And I came on and I debated them and we had fun and I laughed and joked and it was humorous. And they were surprised that someone that disagreed with them didn't like hate their guts and just attack them. We just had a disagreement with a lot of jokes and fun. And they said, can you come on every week from now on and do a do a radio show with us? And that's how I got started on radio. Eventually, one t- one day, I got a call from Fox News in New York. I started doing radio shows, various radio shows. I ended up getting one at, with Pacifica Network in Washington D.C. One week, I got a call from New York from Fox News and said, "Hey, we'd like you to come up here. We've been listening to your show. Blah blah blah." And um, I was on a show on Fox News. I did one interview and then they asked me to come back and come back. And before I knew it, I was on Fox News for many, many years. When I was on pretty much every show on Fox News except Hannity. I was never on Hannity, but all the rest I was on. And I was uh, so I did radio and TV. I eventually started doing a, uh, a TV show on the Fox of, uh, affiliates in New York City, Philadelphia, all of New England. And uh, it was a news show. I did that regularly. And interestingly enough, I left that because the host of the show started to take more time off. And they and they asked me, hey, why don't you start hosting the show? So I started hosting a, a TV show. And I'm like, wow, my career is taking off here. And they were saying, you know, good things are going to be happening for you, Garland. Things are looking good, right? And I started reading from a teleprompter. And I did it one month and I left so that's it. I'm done. And I left. And it's funny because everybody wants to do me. You know, everybody in this business wants to be on the mainstream media and in, in national TV. And I was after one week. I said, no, nope. I mean, one year, one month. I After all of those years, one month of reading from the teleprompter at, at Fox, I'm, I was like, I'm out of here. And I um, so now I do my show on Radio Sputnik. I also have a show on the Pacifica Network in Washington, D.C., and a show on the Pacifica Network, KPFK in Los Angeles, and, of course, my YouTube show. So that's kind of my history. I'm a real left-leaning person, but I am of a philosophical nature. I'm always searching for the truth, searching for reality, searching for the answer. So I don't let my ideological bend blind me. If something comes, if reality ever does not coincide with something that I think or believe, I change what I think or believe. I don't try to adjust reality. And so that's, I think, why I get along with a lot of people of various um, ideological alignments, because I love people and I don't dislike people simply because we disagree on particular um, political uh, issues. Yeah, and, and actually, that's one of the things I like the most about you. I mean, you're very down to earth. 
you're very reasonable. And uh, there are not many people who can separate their personal ideology with just objectively looking at what's going on. And the other thing I like about you is that you get everything right about what's going on with Russia and also China. It's very hard to find people like that. They could get one or the other, but usually not both. There's a, a small and growing number that are, but you're one of them. So that's something that I really appreciate about you. Which one do you want to start talking about first, uh, Russia or China? Let's start with the Russia, Russia, China, sure. Ukraine stuff. Sure. So um, what what are you watching closest? Are you watching the offensive, the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant uh, saga, the Wagner incident? As I'm I think it, something, which... well, and I think something that's going on in Europe, you know, I like to see the relationship between things, right? So, okay, the Wagner supposed uh, coup attempt or whatever the case may be, right? I like to try to find things to relate. Let's look at France right now. You know, all of this talk that we heard, Russia's unstable, it's falling apart, the people are freaking out. You know, it's like we're watching World War Z, they're running in different directions and eating each other. That's what we'd heard about Russia, right? But Russia is a country that has a strong central government and it has a very unified um, electorate. And the people, I would argue that the government more or less represents the needs of the people. And that means that they have a unity and an alignment with the people. So 24 hours of this so-called coup and it was out of here. No madness, no World War Z. Now let's look at France right now. I don't know if for those of you who haven't been watching, you need to go on Twitter and look, it's burning. That people are freaking out. It looks like a zombie apocalypse. And what is that about to me? It's about a history of colonialism and violence and, and madness and hypocrisy. And they go around the world. Right now, the, what is it? The country of Niger that has all that gold? They don't get a dime of it. It all gets um, goes right into the Bank of France. And, you, and people wonder, why is it that the Africans and the Middle Easterners, et cetera, are all siding with Russia? Because they have been oppressed and colonialized and mistreated. I have, um, you might have heard of the, the uh, Uhuru movement, the people... Uh, African People's Socialist Party that the FBI is going after. I was interviewing their um, leader and he said, Garland, think about this. Uh, his name is uh, Omali Yashatali. He says, why is it that you, you look around the United States and you don't find any black people with Chinese or Russian last names? Because they were colonialized by the Chinese and Russians. That's why the African people, you know, if you look at it, are siding with the Africans and Russians. Because if you look at it, they understand history and who was on their side and who was screwing them over. So I say, isn't it interesting that a week ago we were being told by the imperial and colonialist powers in Europe, who historically have mistreated people and robbed them all over the world, how um, Russia was going to fall apart, it was dropping, blah, blah, blah. A week later, you look at France and France is in flames and falling apart. And if you look at what's happening, if you look at the guy who got killed and this all started, he is, I think, is it Algerian? descent, I believe it is. Anyway, one of the former colonies. And in France, they don't have birthright citizenship. So you can be your father, your grandfather, or whatever could have come from one of these countries that France colonized, but you're still not a citizen. You got to work under the table. You don't get any benefits. You don't get... So the area where this guy was in is very poor. And the area that he was in is carrying the legacy of French colonialism. Right. The struggle of French colonialism is still alive in neighborhoods like that. And as soon as they had an issue and this guy get killed, got killed, I think what's happening in France is an explosion of historical anger over what France did. I mean, they like genocided like millions of people in these countries. Right. They still have a historical anger there and angst. And I think that's what's coming out now. It's history coming back to bite France in the behind. But a week ago, we were being told that Russia's unstable and it's going to fall apart. And reality now is um, is the chickens, uh, what's the old saying? The skies are darkened with the flapping of the wings of chickens that are coming home to roost. Thank you, Garland Nixon. And coming up next on the show. There's a void inside of me, inside of everyone. What is happening to me? There's an endless abyss. You are really harshing my mellow, man. Ah! 
your coffin. I'll see you buried in it. Welcome. Welcome to my cabinet of curiosities. And those were scenes from Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, described as, quote, an anthology of sinister stories told by revered horror creators, which includes our guest coming up on the show, Texas-based Catherine Hardwick, known for the Twilight series as well as Lords of Dogtown. She'll be talking about that and more, including her current film, Prisoner's Daughter, starring Brian Cox and dealing with working-class life in this country, including the struggles of single working mothers, drugs, and incarceration. First, some scenes from Prisoner's Daughter, then Catherine Hardwick. Hello? It's Dad. I'm, I'm getting out soon. In the time I have left, I would like to spend it with you. I'll do it on one condition. You pay me rent. Oh my God, you're still so beautiful. You're a tenant. That's it. It'll be passed down to generations to come. It's been ages since I've seen this place. Oh, it's a dump filled with bad memories. I'm not that guy anymore. Don't come in here now like you're some hero, because you're not. I promise I will never let them harm you again. I know none of this will make up for who I was or what I did. But let me be your father. Why did you go to jail? Which time? Wait, how many times did you go to prison? More than I care to remember. Hello and welcome to our show. How you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Cool. Okay. What was it about Prisoner's Daughter, that the story and this film, that led you to come on board as the director? Well, when I started reading about um, this woman, you know, played by Kate Beckinsale, that's been struggling so much, you know, to um, get kind of get past her past and deal as a single mom make a living, you know, mm. in on kind of like the backside of Vegas, protect her son, deal with a marriage that did not work out. Uh, and then and then she's, her father reaches out to her from prison, and she has to make this decision, am I going to let him into my life, and can I ever trust him again? And you feel for her deeply, and then you also feel for, I felt, for Brian Cox's character, who really has had years in prison to reflect on his past, and now he really wants to change and make a difference in his daughter's life and his, you know, he finds out he has a grandson and wants to make a difference in his grandson's life. So it was quite compelling. Can you have this second chance? Can you, you know, find, can you redeem yourself, you know? And is there anything about Prisoner's Daughter that was personal for you and connecting to something in your own life? Well, instantly feeling the struggles of Kate's character, I think, is something that we all feel like she has many obstacles that she has to overcome. And we've all kind of talked about it quite a bit as a woman director in this business coming up, you have you have struggle, you have obstacles put up against you kind of at all times, you know, that people don't believe in you, you your confidence is um, in debt, you know, you have to doubt yourself different times, you're trying to really find a way to stand up for yourself. Also, I had my father had the same um, cancer diagnosis, pancreatic uh-huh. cancer as Brian, so I went through that with him. And, uh, you know, just feeling what he thought as he reflected over his life, you know, and how can you, what's your legacy in a way? And and in Brian's case, you know, how could he change his legacy uh, to be something, you know, that his 
kid and his grandson would be proud of. And how did you see Brian Cox as the perfect choice for this complicated and conflicted character? Well, um, you know, Brian, of course, is like knocking us out with succession. He's so amazing and powerful in that. But for years, of course, he's been doing other complex and interesting roles. And so he's just such a layered actor. And in person, you know, he's so warm and funny and hilarious. So, you know, um, I thought it was kind of an interesting compliment for his succession character because in succession you see him being um, not <laughs> very compassionate. Like this character, this character's almost, you know, regretting his past sins. But you also see another thing in succession, he's extremely verbally violent but in this one he's also you realize that he has a past of violence and you actually see brian cox you know being violent physically violent in this and you know i just thought brian well he's a master he could really do anything but i knew he would nail this and especially when he called and said i really feel this character i know this man I know what to do with him. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I believe you. <laughs> yeah. And would you, what would you say it is about young people that draws you to frequently portray them in movies? Well, you know, my first uh, film, of course, 13, mm-hmm. uh, that was basically uh, almost not even my choice. That was a family friend that was going through, Nikki Reed, that was going through some tough stuff, her and her mom and her friends. And I just... At first, my whole goal was, like, let me try to help her figure out what's going on and do something creative instead of destructive. And then I started to realize, of course, it's just such an interesting time when you're, you know, 12, like our character in this movie, he's like 12 years old. You're, You're coming into your own. It's the first time you could be independent, the first time you could start to drive or kiss kiss a boy or kiss a girl or drink or, you know, so many choices are happening for you and it's so dramatic and everything means so much and is so important that it's really almost the most high stakes part of your life in a way, you know, or it feels that way like every day. It's quite fascinating dramatically. And looking back on Twilight, what are your thoughts about its enduring and enormous success in the public imagination? Well, I think it's amazing. Um, you know, Steph, obviously it started with Stephanie Meyer's um, dream of these um, vampires out in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, she had such an original dream, and then she really followed it through, which we tried to follow through in the um, film of that feeling, that ecstatic feeling of falling in love for the first time and just how crazy and giddy and, you know, intoxicating that can be. And so I think people love, you know, we all, everybody on the planet has somehow fallen in love or crushed really hard on someone. So to get to kind of relive it or experience Mm -hmm. it is kind of, you know, fun. That was my challenge in making the movie. How do I convey that feeling? And, you know, just like Romeo and Juliet has endured from, you know, the 1500s, you know, this, you know, beautiful romantic love story, people just keep going back to that, oh, I wish I could have that kind of love, you know. Mm. And your other film that just came out, Mafia Mama, was quite a different turn for you. What led you to direct that film? Well, I think, you know, I loved working with Toni Collette. She's just... So such a vital force, and she can do all anything, you know, drama and comedy. And I hadn't seen her do comedy in a while, and so she brought that to me, and and it was it felt like a great antidote to, you know, a contrast to a lot of the serious things that people are watching and all the serious things we've been going through with COVID and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. So I thought, let's just do something that is crazy fun, (laughs) just outrageous fun, and then uh, also, of course, it has an underlying message of kind of female empowerment. She really does come into her own by inheriting a mafia operation (laughs) in a wild way, so 
I just felt like, you know, that could be a really cool thing to have a good laugh and uh, feel the underlying message, too. And what can you say about dreams in the witch house and collaborating on that with Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities? Oh, my God. Okay, that's <laughs> another dream <laughs> dream come true for me to work with Guillermo, who's just um, become such a ma is such a master at creating these spooky, fabulous, enchanted worlds, and that just he, he is so rich in the details too. That I mean, for me, when he called and said, "Are you interested in doing this?" and you'd be working with my whole team, you know, his incredible production designer and costume designer and creature designers, and you know, I'm just like, oh, that's beautiful, and he made a big effort that each of the eight directors that worked on that, you know, we, we did have our own autonomy, you know, we could, he, our shows were different from each one, mine was set in 1932 in Boston, everyone's in a different time period, none of the cast overlaps, so, you know, you, it was like making a, a really cool one hour long, you know, indie film, actually, with a master helping you you know, do the creatures and, and create all these layers of beautiful richness. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. that was a dream, dream come true. Mm -hmm. Now, getting back to Prisoner's Daughter, you create such an honest and vivid connection to the plight of a woman, of women in the real world, and not some Hollywood fantasy about their lives. What can you say about that? Yeah, I think that was really important, like from every detail, mm -hmm. to try to build up that reality, including finding a house. I mean, I personally knocked on the doors of 50 houses in Vegas that mm -hmm. kind of fit the character that, you know, the house had to have been not remodeled in the last, like, 40 years, not much attention or care. Uh, she had very little money. So just actually even working in a real house like that, it helped inform Kate and Christopher and Brian and myself and the cinematographer. You know, the the um, flooring had never been changed in 40 years, you know. But I still wanted to build up the idea that she really made an effort and tried, that she went and bought some fun new pillows. And, you know, and actually, you know, Kate did work in that kitchen. Everybody mm. kind of had to be in that kitchen. And, and you know, we talked about, you know, what uh, what level of clothing, how much could she afford to buy? Where does she buy her clothes, you know? And those are the kind of clothes that Kate wore, too, things that were all affordable in her price range. Of course, when Kate Beckinsale wears them, they look pretty darn good, but <laughs> better than most of the rest of us wearing those same clothes. But, you know, so I feel like, you know, we, we really tried to feel what it would be like for this woman that had made some wrong choices in her life, uh, particularly with the person she married, mm -hmm. uh, who was patterned after her father, you know, with a history of violence and everything, charming, but, you know, prone to outbursts and violence and erratic nature and drug addiction. And, you know, that's kind of what we were trying to show, that she's trying to figure out now how to protect her son, how to break that cycle of violence, you know, and how to, everything she's doing is focused on protecting her kid. You know, she doesn't, you don't really see her having, like, boyfriends or doing almost anything for herself. It's all working, you know, two jobs, day job, night job, and taking care of her son. Now, you didn't direct your first feature film, I heard, until you were 48 years old. How do you feel that has influenced your filmmaking and your approach to filmmaking? Well, I feel like it works two ways. I mean, number one, I wish I could have started much earlier. <laughs> but as you know, um, you know, it's challenging. It's always been challenging for women, especially then, to get their breaks. So, you know, I think it's better now, like a lot of younger women are getting to direct a lot earlier. Yay. But for <laughs> me, of course, I did get a lot of experience because I was a production designer and I worked for these incredible directors, you know, from, you know, Richard Linklater, David O. Russell, Costa Gavras, Lisa Chaladink, Rachel Talley, you know, Cameron Crowe. And I got to watch 
you know, all the different techniques that they use, you know, to add energy to a scene and to prepare. So I guess at the same time that I was working with them in a, you know, pretty, you know, amazing job as a production designer, which puts you on a movie very early on. You're usually one of the first people hired because you have to figure out, are we going to build this set or what location, what state, what country are we going to shoot in? So it's really a cool position to learn a lot and see a lot. And um, But I would be taking classes at the same time, taking acting classes on the weekends or in between jobs, taking writing classes, everything I could so that I would be prepared if I could ever get the chance to do it. And in a way, it paid off because, you know, my first movie, you know, did well. You know, it went all over the world to festivals and, you know, got released by Fox Searchlight and, you know, um, got all the way to the Academy Awards for Holly Hunter nomination. So the fact that I was so prepared, I guess, I was able to, you know, help make that a good movie with the help of all the wonderful actors and everybody else. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, uh, what were you up to in We the Economy, and why were you interested in being part of that project? Oh, yeah, that was just a really random project. <laughs> um, I remember that just kind of like random project came in. I really did not know much about that the subject, so I thought, well, this is a fun chance to learn <laughs> about this, work with another young, wonderful actress, Annalise Basso, and... Um, also, you know, you every time you, as a director, you get to shoot something, it's pretty fun and exhilarating. You, I got to work with a new DP on that and, you know, a new production designer. So it was really fun um, and, and a great thing to explore, a little comedy, <laughs> you know. I don't know. It was just so random. And a lot of times as a director, you're spending all your time in development, trying to get something made, and then somebody says, hey, you want to just come for a couple of days and make something that's you know, could be enlightening for people to learn about the economy that I certainly learned from it. And what did you learn and what was your topic there? Uh, my topic was, uh, wasn't it on the Federal Reserve uh -huh. uh, banks? And, uh, you know, I didn't even know much about the banking system. I'm just usually, you know, like some people, we get in our own little world too much. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> my world's being architecture and then uh, switching to film and, um, you know, adventure sports in some ways, you know, mountain biking, surfing and stuff. So it was just another world to dive into. And would you say with Prisoner's Daughter and your other works uh, that there's any particular thread creatively that connects or runs through all your work? Well, the thing that I, you know, hope or that I look for in a project is, you know, relationships and, um, you know, feeling the relationships really between the characters and uh, characters' growth, you, you could say. Um, and hopefully, on, of course, we want to entertain or engage the audience, you know, so... Each one has a different level, like, you know, this one that had these three incredible or four incredible relationships, maybe five, you should say, in Prisoner's Daughter. You know, even Ernie Hudson's relationship with um, um, uh, the Brian Cox character was fascinating, that they had been friends for a long time. Mm -hmm. Could they be honest with each other? Would Ernie Hudson continue to help Brian Cox? You know, the relationship with the husband you know, I found him to be a real person that was struggling, you know, with his addictions. He said, I don't want to be this way, mm -hmm. you know, and he wanted to have a connection with his son. He just didn't have the tools or the yeah. skills to figure it out. You know? So I feel like, um, you know, is there a complex relationship in each story, you know, that, that I can explore and that shines a bit of light yeah. on humanity, certainly in 13, you know, mm -hmm. the mother, the daughter, the friend. It's very intense, the relationships and how they navigate them. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much, Catherine Hardwick, for calling into our show. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate all your very 
deep and thoughtful questions. Oh, wonder, that, that was fantastic. That's wonderful <laughs> to hear at my end. <laughs> okay, and good luck with the film. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And Prisoner's Daughter is out now in release. This is Comrade Karl Marx. And when I'm visiting the 21st century, I listen to Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. Listeners of the world, unite. That's Arts Express with host Prairie Miller, where art meets politics. And if you're down with the status quo, take the local. And next on Arts Express, the plight of global refugees, the film about refugees in Serbia, as far as I can walk. But what does it mean personally to a filmmaker growing up in internal exile within a country disappearing all around him? Here's Stefan Asimjevic. Hello and welcome to our show. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Now, what led you to want to create this story and this film? Well, I, I am coming from Europe, from the uh, city of Belgrade in Serbia, and uh, during this big migrant crisis that was happening uh, several years ago, and it's still happening, I was really witnessing a lot of uh, migrants passing by. It's uh, officially, statistically, it's more than one million uh, migrants and refugees who, who passed through my hometown. Uh, and then, you know, I had a feeling uh, I was witnessing to something really big and uh, movement of people and something historical. Uh, and by the way, this was the, the biggest refugee crisis after the Second World War. So as a filmmaker, obviously, as a human being as well, I had a feeling I should do something, and, and uh, then I started researching, uh, getting to know uh, the people, getting to know the real stories and the intimate stories of, uh, of the migrants, because mostly in the media you don't see stories, you just hear numbers and some statistics. And I was interested in the more in, into this... Uh, human stories and real people. Um, I, uh, when, I mean, I, I also come uh, from a country that was in war, and I've been through war and poverty in the 90s, and uh, I had a feeling that um, a lot of time when, when the migrants and refugees are portrayed in the, in, in the films, they, they are somehow um, uh, portrayed mostly for all the good reasons, but uh, as victims, and uh, I was uh, seeing these people who are, were pretty much like me, and, and nobody really wants to be a victim. So I came up uh, with the idea to actually make some kind of a different migrant movie. And speaking of which, that was my next question. Is your film autobiographical or personal for you in any way? Because in a sense, you yourself were subjected to internal exile growing up in a country, Yugoslavia, that disappeared all around you? Well, definitely this experience of growing up in a country that doesn't exist anymore, that, that, that was dissolved in a war, was something that, was, um, that, that, that made a really big impact on me uh, personally. So when I was seeing these new people who were fleeing from the war, I, I could really very easily identify with them. So, of course, it became very personal. And um, I kind of I had a feeling that, 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 that you know, um, we don't really know in the media enough about these people, and mm -hmm. uh, and and they they uh, they are really um, people with big dreams, and people like us, very often very educated, and uh, uh, and 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 this is basically uh, my my personal reason uh, to do it. And I wanted to ask you, I don't know how the media. Uh, covers the migrants who perish at, at sea and drown. I hear there is not much coverage, but they've given tremendous amount of coverage to the billionaires who died in the Titanic submarine, while they hardly ever cover 
the the poor refugees drowning in the oceans all the time. Now, what are your thoughts about that? Yes, there, there was this uh, uh, really two tragedies back by back, and in in one case that you were mentioning, close to uh, uh, coast of Greece, that there were hundreds of uh, refugees who 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 died. It's such a loss. And then you had this. Uh, by the way, most of them coming from Pakistan, and then you had this several very rich people also dying in submarine, which was again a tragedy with the, some of them also coming from Pakistan. And, and the media coverage was completely, as you can uh, witness, very different. So it, it's kind of, it's, uh, it's nothing new. I always have a feeling that, you know, they're, um, one of the things that our film is focusing on is this different, uh, also, when we say migrants and refugees, you know, it's, it's, it's always we have a feeling it's like a one monolith group, but basically there are so many layers and layers, and some of them have priorities. And uh, my idea in the film was to focus with the most underprivileged people and to try to understand what is their reason uh, to take such a hard and, uh, and life-threatening journey and and just by you know spending five minutes with any of them uh, you can you can know for sure that nobody would do it just you know like that there there must be some real reason that drives you to take this very very dangerous par uh, path and a journey and and as as we mentioned some of them don't even make it uh yeah so i i i i think um I think one of the intimate reasons for making this film is to uh, to put really the human faces on, on 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 these people that we just hear briefly in the news about and and like saying like hundreds of migrants drowned you know but who are these people if you go one by one and if you get into their stories I think they really deserve it and 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 it's basically about the basic human dignity and and understanding what is driving them and what they really dream of. Mm. And as we spoke about, you were a young man during the wars against Yugoslavia and the breakup of Yugoslavia. How would you say that has influenced you as a filmmaker and your storytelling? Um, uh, well, I kind of... Um, one of the one of the things that uh, after having this personal experience of of war uh, is one of the things that I um, uh, always see in the films when I'm when I'm watching them and again for some good reasons always for good intentions um, directors tend to treat the characters as some you know victims some other people who are very unfortunate and then something really bad happened to them and uh, you know e their life becomes even worse we really want to do to do something else we wanted to make characters who are refugees and migrants but with whom you can very easily identify i i my my main political you know aim with this film was that when you watch this film in the beginning you're kind of okay it's a brand you know a new world for me in the world of migrants but but towards the end that you completely get part of it you identify with them and you understand them and that, that this could be some uh, you you know uh, and uh, breaking this otherness that is always present in the media and in the films is something that 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 really is important for me and uh, our aim was by you know instead of focusing on 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 some other aspects of migrant life we were focusing on a very intimate story and this is a love story and uh, if you think about the stories of our main care protagonists uh, it, it's a love story that could happen to any of us but of course the fact that it's happening uh, in the migrant uh, microcosmos it's, it's, it's much more interesting but you know it's, it's something that could happen to any of us and identifying uh, with somebody and having empathy is, uh, I think, the, one of the greatest uh, strengths of the cinema as a medium. And have you had any backlash against your film from those portrayed in a negative light, in particular Syria? Uh, I had a, uh, no, not, no, not, not really, not at all in that context, but I had a, uh, there was a, people in, uh, in my country were not too happy 
uh, with the idea that I was using uh, something that is a Serbian medieval epic poem. It's a very important part of our cultural heritage. And then I was reimagining it nowadays in a contemporary, uh, you know, African uh, refugees are taking the, the, the places of uh, Serbian national heroes, basically. People who, who didn't like it, they, they, we had even some threats, but some bad reviews. But I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a, usual, I'm a very positive person, so I kind of really nev- don't like to focus on it at all. And I think it's, of course, I, it's something is, is expected. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, but I think really 90% of the audience I met with, uh, both in my country and uh, around the world when I was traveling with the film, was really um, very emotionally reacting to the film. And I think this is, for me as a filmmaker, this is most important, uh, having the emotion in the cinema. Now, you've also made another film about immigrants, Palestinians, in Do Not Forget Me, Istanbul. What personally inspired you to create that story and that film? Uh, yeah, that was part of the omnibus, actually, in uh, uh, in Istanbul, but I didn't direct it. It was Hani Abu Asad who directed that story. I was doing the, another story that was not really dealing with refugees at that time. So, um, yeah, I... I cannot talk uh, uh, about it. <laughs> well, that was, uh, I guess that was misinformation yeah, on sorry. the internet that said you yeah. it was your film. <laughs> it's a, it's a, no, it's a, it, it's, it's a film, uh, it's an um, omnibus film with several de- people, several directors uh, doing um, different stories in the film. Mm. So I was one of the directors there, but my story was focusing on... Uh, um, uh, you know, a middle-aged couple on a vacation who, who in Istanbul, who, and then this woman gets lost uh, and suddenly sees uh, somebody she believes is her son who died many years ago. And one last question. What can you say about your hopes and fears regarding the current conflict between Serbia, Kosovo, and NATO? No, I... It's a, it's a very uh, long, ongoing conflict, and I think, you know, it's, uh, I'm really hoping that it will resolve very soon, and I always have a feeling, as a, as a very optimistic person, that, you know, we are coming to, to resolve, but then, you know, for years, and then something happens. I think, basically, the politicians are always, you know, uh, getting more uh, from the situation if there is a conflict there. So I, I have a feeling that, that ordinary people would love the, this, this thing to, to finally be resolved uh, and to find a compromise. But I think, uh, I think somehow you know, it, it's easier for politicians to create conflicts because you know, they can end up as being like a saviors or whatever. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I hope for the peace, always. Okay, thank you so much, Stefan, for calling into our show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. And As Far As I Can Walk has just been released. And now on Arts Express. This is Bro on the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Global Crime Novel. Worldwide Corruption and Chiseling. In a 1931 Warner Brothers film, Blonde Crazy, in the pre-code period where expression was raunchier and more truthful before the era of middle-class censorship, as the Depression reaches its peak, conniving bellhop James Cagney is trying to convince new hotel hire Joan Blondell to go on the road with him and work a hustle together. Leaning into the ingenue and laying his cards on the table, he makes his pitch, explaining that the age of chivalry is over. This is the age of chiselry. And the evidence of this year's Quai du Polar in Lyon, France, uh, one of the largest conventions in the world of global crime writers, the age of chiselry is, as the current recession, inflation, austerity continues, back with us, bigger and badder than ever. And that age is not only perpetuated from below, but also from on top as the very rich, with the global pie shrinking, take whatever steps are necessary, lawful or not, to hold on to what they've got, whether that was acquired lawfully or not as well. 
Perhaps the star of the conference was India's Deepti Kapoor, whose Age of Vice is now being adapted for series TV by Disney Plus and FX. Age of Vice takes place in the early 2000s, a time, the author explained, when India was making a transition from socialism to capitalism. It was also, as she describes it in the novel, a time when gangsters and organized crime entered the government, melding with regional authorities in a level of corruption that exceeded even Russia in the 1990s under its alcoholic czar, Boris Yeltsin. In that period, as Nick Harkaway, a crime author himself and John Le Carre's son, who was in Russia at the time, pointed out, gangsters profited from but stayed out of the government. Age of Ice is also developers profiting in this new modern India as whole settlements of the poorest are removed from the Yamuna Riverbank in Delhi, with everyone's conscience eased because they are offered resettlement housing. However, the gangster developer quickly sends his representatives into this area to buy back the resettlement land and to tear down the cheap housing and build on that. The gangster's son, who gallivants across the globe with his father's money, has the vision of making the riverbank look like the Thames, with museums and upscale developments replacing encampments inhabited by the poor. But his father cuts that vision short and opts instead for the pure profit of high-rises for the rich. As Kapoor pointed out, India, with now the largest population in the world, according to the latest Oxfam survey, has reached in the wake of the corruption she describes in the first decade of this century, new levels of inequality. The top 1% owned 40% of the wealth, while the bottom 50% owned 3%. In an opposite way, in a panel that included Kapoor, Jake Adelstein, the author of Tokyo Vice, which Michael Mann has adapted into a series, now renewed for a second season, described the overreach of Japanese gangsters, the Yakuza, whose power has recently been curtailed in Japan because they attempted to aggressively challenge the police and the government, disrupting a truce that saw each existing side by side with the other. Adelstein, who is a reporter working on the crime beat in Tokyo, also explained that, like Roberto Saviano, whose investigative work on the Naples Mafia, the Camorra, has entailed him living in constant police protection, Adelstein, because of his extensive inside reporting on the Yakuza, now needs police protection when he visits Japan. Volker Kutcher, author of 10 books on which the German series Babylon Berlin is based, with the first five translated into English, described the schlumpy hero of the series, Garyon Rath, as a mensch. Rath is the sometimes less than decisive protagonist of the series. He is, though, a staunch defender of the Weimar Republic, as we watch it as the series, which starts in 28, progresses or regresses through the years of Hitler's coming to power. In the Fatherland Files, set in 1932, Rath is sent to a remote corner of Germany near the Polish-German border as he tracks a wily killer who operates in Berlin. The still unresolved tensions in the border region, which a plebiscite had claimed for Germany, and the nationalist fervor of the Germans in the region, now further deepened by the ominous presence of the brown-shirted SS, as well as the supposed patriotic fervor of a prosperous brewer, are the seeds from which this violence in Berlin has erupted. Elsewhere, Dennis Lehane, author of, among others, Gone Baby Gone and Mystic River, addressed the conference remotely from the U.S. and explained how his latest novel, Small Mercies, set in Boston in 1974 at the time of forced busing to desegregate the public school system, dealt with a racial hatred not so dissimilar to Kutcher's Borderland Germans that resulted in the tragedy of the death of a little girl. Melvina Maestra took the audience on a journey of both time and space as she described her latest novel, Twilight in Casablanca, set in the early 1950s, where the city was abuzz with spies, including a huge presence of American intelligence trying to influence the continent. Jerika Pavishich, whose novel Red Water won the European Prize for Best Crime Novel two years ago, returned to the conference with the soon-to-be-translated The Woman on the Second Floor. Red Water described with a sprawling depth the breakup of Yugoslavia, the years of war after that breakup, and the modern Dalmatian coast now turned into a high-end Western investment haven and tourist paradise, changes that left the populace gasping as they tried to keep up. 
Woman on the second floor covers similar territory, but this time in microcosm, as a wife looks back on the events and rapid-fire transformations that led her to murder her mother-in-law. As such, the novel and its intricate description of the consciousness of a single character and its explanation of what led her to violence has something in common with David E. Kelly's masterful Love and Death, with Elizabeth Olsen in a true crime recounting of how repression in a Texas suburb led her, as she made a valiant effort to escape that repression, to commit a violent act. Finally, from Marseille came the winner of the French Prize for a Crime Novel of the Year, Gerard Lacasse's Blood of Our Enemies, a policier, as the French call it, set in that city in 1962 on the eve of the ending of the war for Algerian independence, and a novel that may well soon become a television series. Two cops of different political persuasions, one communist, one conservative, must investigate the death of an Arab man whose body is drained of blood. The city is filled with representatives of the right-wing terrorist group, the OAS, the Algerian independentist uh, movement, the FLN, Pied Noir, refugees from Algeria who supported and gained from colonial rule, and Harkis, Algerians who served on the side of the French in the war. The two contrary officers must navigate these various groups as they search for the killer in a novel that has intonations of Dominique Minotti's Marseille 73, where 11 years later, the same tensions still erupt in a far-right plan to retake Algeria. Thus, across the globe and through history, writers of crime fiction, as seen in this year's Quai du Polar, are tracing an increasingly more malevolent turn toward violence as global conditions break down in the face of worsening poverty and inequality. This is Bro on the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. And Dennis Bro, I should say, is the author of Calamitous Corruption, the Harry Palmer L.A. trilogy that consists of Left of Eden, A Hello to Arms, and his latest, The Precinct with the Golden Arm. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.